is from John 1, 14 through 18, and can be found on page 886 of the Pew Bible. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we rejoice in this season. And for us, by your grace, it's not just a season, but it's the whole of our lives that we live in the light of the Advent and in hope of the final Advent. We, Lord, have been bought out of this dark world to belong to Jesus Christ, to be a part of his kingdom, to await that time when grace will be fully revealed to us in his coming, when he will cause our bodies to be conformed to his body of glory, when the sons of God will see their final adoption and its glorious results entering in to reign with Christ forever. Lord, these are gifts. This is salvation. This is restoration beyond imagination. We we can't conceive of it. It is, as Paul says, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Oh, Lord, this morning, as we try to get at this amazing passage... I confess my absolute inadequacy. There's, there's no way. Um, we pray that your spirit, though, would take these feeble words, Lord, take the truth of this passage, bring it home to our hearts, that we might rejoice anew in the glorious God who has given his Son for us, Lord, we rest in you. We know that you're eager to bless your people. You're eager to reveal yourself. You love to reveal your beauty and glory to us. So make us helpless and humble and eager and expectant that you would show yourself to us even together as you've already begun to and and have in the, the call, the confession, the singing of hymns. Oh, Lord, continue to bless your people your people that you've bought with your own blood. We ask for your glory. Amen. If you're visiting with us um, in the Sundays of December, we've been looking at these first 18 verses of John. Catch you up a little bit. This is the prologue, called the prologue to John's gospel, Prologue is that which introduces us. 
to what follows. Uh, prologue taken from the Greek word pro, which means before, and logos, which means word. So it's a before word, a previous word about what comes. And basically in this prologue, John says this, look, the God who made all things took upon himself flesh, he dwelled among us, and he made known God to us. He revealed his glory to us. And we should be like, what? For real? God did that? Yeah, yeah. And get this, most people rejected him when he came. No, no. Now, let me tell you some things he said and some of the things he did. Let's see what you think. No, he goes through the rest of his book, see? That's the feel of this, this introduction. And, you know, we've seen reveals in many ways. Kids, you probably have awaited the revelation or the reveal of some new toy or certainly a new version of a game, right? Or maybe a whole new game that's been advertised and the reveal occurs and people are standing in line to get the game, right? You you may get there at midnight to get some new iPhone or game or whatever. There's just the reveal of this new thing. And Christ is the great reveal of God. He is the great reveal of God. This this whole prologue ends with this phrase that the Son has made him known. The word really is explained him. Just like if you had a whole series of things happen to you one afternoon and the next day you're explaining that to someone. You're telling them about it. Or maybe you're uh, summarizing the events of the past three months and you're explaining all the things that happened to you. That's the word here. He comes to explain. Not just to speak and explain, but in his very actions, in the things he does... His, his being, his self, his actions explain to us who God is. So, based on this final phrase that he's explained or revealed or declared, that's another translation, I've used the word declaration as our kind of outline here. So, we'll see that it's an exclusive declaration It's an intimate declaration. It's a full declaration. It's a gracious declaration. Now, it's an exclusive, or you could use the word unique declaration. Because he says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but this one explains him. This is the first time this has been done. The only time this has been done. And that's interesting because God made himself known in countless ways. In creation itself. Everywhere you look, God makes himself known. And in even the culture that we see, God makes himself known. uh, To see the glory and wisdom of God. And then of countless ways in the history of God's people in the Old Testament. He... Makes himself known, but never like this. And in some way, 
for the first time, the Son shows us something about God that we've never seen before. That's what he's saying. This is, we've never seen this. And he shows it to us. So what is it? This unique declaration that God gives to us. But it's also an intimate declaration because he says in verse 18 that the only one and only God, speaking of Jesus, the one and only God is who's at the Father's side. Now, in the original language, in this phrase, at the Father's side, has the word bosom or chest in it. And that's why uh, you get the translation, who dwelled in the bosom of the Father. It's one more literal way, perhaps, to translate it. But it's more like this. He was into or toward the bosom of the Father. And here I think the NIV has a great translation. He was in closest relationship to the Father. Bosom indicating that. He was in closest fellowship with the Father, another translation has. Others would even say he was close or near to the Father's heart. Those those help us get at what he's saying. So that there was this intimate, eternal fellowship that existed. In fact, he's, he's ending where he started because where did he start in this, uh, these 18 verses? The word was God, the word was with God, and the word was God. You see? He's beginning and, and, and ending with this glorious, amazing fact that he dwelt with the Father eternally. It indicates how much they're one. This is something Jesus talked over and over about in this gospel. Uh, In chapter 10, he says, my father knows me and I know the father. You see, echoes of that intimate relationship. Where he says, the father is in me and I'm in the father. Another echo of this being toward the bosom or in relationship. The Father and I are one, and there's, so there's no surprise that in chapter 14, he can say, who has seen me, he who has seen me has seen the Father. See? The intimacy and the lightness that existed from eternity. John really presses into this so that we can understand, so that we see, this is not a secondhand report from this one who came. This is not hearsay. This is not a declaration from someone on the fringes. This is the real revelation of the real God by God who knew him, knows him, you see. So in some way, as John will tell us, Jesus makes known to us the deepest treasures of who God is. That's the point. The deepest treasure that could not be known otherwise, is revealed in this person of Jesus Christ. Again, we ask, what is it? What is it? So, you see, it's an exclusive declaration. Only in him, it's an intimate declaration, giving us the essence of who God is. But it's a full (laughs) declaration. For years, I've loved Stephen Wright's off-the-wall humor. 
You know, he walks around like this and just says one disconnected thing from another, right? I think I've given you that one before. Uh, My school colors were clear. No, I'm not naked. I'm in the band. So that would be one. You you have to think about it. All right, so, um, so he says, I got a map of the world. It's life size. All right? You don't think he's as funny as I do. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> but that, you know, the fascination of how could you have a life size, you know, map, it'd be as big as the earth. Well, I think that's a good way to put this, though, that Jesus' revelation of the Father was life size. Okay? There's nothing left out. It's not, we got a partial here. This is the revelation of God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's absolute. So when we sing, which we did this morning, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Godhead meaning the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're unfamiliar with that word Godhead, sounds kind of weird if you hear it for the first time. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veiled doesn't mean hidden. Or covered up as that wearing a veil that covers your face. Then it would read, veiled in flesh, our God concealed. Right? As he was just all covered up. The glory of God. The glory that he has eternal power. The glory that he made all the worlds and all that. That was all hidden in the flesh. That's not the point. That's not the point of what was hidden in the flesh. The point is what was revealed in the flesh. And only by the flesh, because of the flesh, it was revealed. So veiled in flesh is just a way to say clothed in flesh. The Godhead see. Not not see. See. Flesh isn't the means by which his glory is concealed. It's the means by which it is fully revealed. So, <laughs> and, uh, to be really clear then, not I wouldn't change his word to Charles Wesley. It's beautiful as it is, of course. But if you were trying to be clear, you'd say, unveiled in flesh the Godhead see, or revealed in flesh the Godhead see, so that we understand the flesh makes it visible. You see, when he says there in uh, verse... 14, we beheld his glory. That's not a word used for visions. It's a word used for the bodily eye, what you literally see things with. And so he's talking about the glory that we saw in the literal physical flesh of Jesus Christ. So you see, because he came in lowliness, that's the paradox that the true glory of God in Christ is not to be seen in outward splendor, but in the lowliness of this God who came and suffered for people. See, that's a glory that couldn't be shown any other way. How else could it be shown? That was a glory that had never been seen before. And it's not as though you look around the flesh to see the glory. 
uh, that we ignore his flesh in order to see the glory. And sometimes you get caught up in that in, in the Bible and say, well, you know, yes, he was tired and all that. But that's not really where the glory is. The glory is that he was able to walk on water. You know, the glory is that he healed. It, that's true. But these are actually signs of what he came to do to rescue us. See? And his great power he used to serve us and to die for us. So, Morris, Leon Morris, a commentator, uh, scholar says, wrote this. It is part of John's aim to show that Jesus showed forth his glory, not in spite of his earthly humiliation, right? But precisely by means of those humiliations. Supremely is this the case with the cross. To the outward eye, this was the uttermost in degradation, the death of a felon to the eye of faith. It was and is the supreme glory. The supreme glory on the bloody cross. And it just thrills me and draws me that when he was, Jesus was raised from the dead and he enters into heaven and the apostle John gives us glimpses of what's going on. Uh, in heaven, and then later in chapters 21 and 22, he's actually giving us a glimpse into what the new creation will be, right? But, but for this part, um, some of it, it's just what's going on in heaven. And here's how the praise works in chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. That's why he's worthy. That's why he's glorified. That's why he was exalted to the right hand of God. Because he suffered. (laughs) He says, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why? Because he humbled himself. Because he died. Because he's the lamb who was slain. And so now the praise a few verses later says, now to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory. You see, now the father always wants to be associated, always wants to be praised as the one who gave his son to be the lamb. This is who God is forever. This is how he's to be worshiped forever as the God who's now permanently associated with the lamb because you see the lamb of God as 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 Jesus said who has seen me has seen the father the lamb of God in that sense yes he's the one who accomplished it but it's not as though that character is different from the father it expresses the character of the father that's what the father wanted to do that's what the father himself would do but the son came and did it So when we worship the Lamb, we are worshiping the Father because that's who He is. That's the kind of God He is. He sacrifices. And so eternally uh, in the new creation, in the last chapter, it says the river of water of life flows from the throne of God and from the Lamb. See, all blessings 
come from God through this lamb. His accomplishment, his death is the source for everlasting life. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the midst of it. You see, the father wants you and me to know I will be in your midst. What will I be? I will be on the throne and I will be a lamb with you forever. All power, all compassion. All power, all love forever. That's who I am. So this is how God is forever defined. The one on the throne sacrificed himself as a lamb. This is how he will be remembered. This is how he will be honored. The only way to know the true God is to know him through the lamb of God. There is no other God but this gracious, amazing God who sacrifices himself. Every other God is an invention. (laughs) Thankfully, the true God is a God of limitless compassion. An incredible humility. So he glorifies God in his death by showing what kind of love the Father has for a lost world. In Christ, the Father takes on humanity. In Christ, the Father humbles himself and suffers and dies for the sake of lost humanity. Because he does nothing but what the, the Son says, I do nothing except what the Father does. And when you see my works, you see the works of the Father. He who's seen me has seen the Father. The Father's heart is revealed in Christ. This is what God does. This is what God is. He explains God to us. He explains God to us. So you see, the more shame and degradation, the more glory the more suffering, the more he's despised and rejected. Ultimately, the more he is glorified because he shows the extent to which he will suffer for his people. So here in his humanity and suffering, the veil is pulled back as in no other place. And you can look at it this way. The suffering of Christ is painful exploratory surgery to discover the infinite health of God. Painful exploratory surgery to see the infinite health of God. John writes in another place, in another book, God is love. That love was revealed in the blood of the cross. And finally, it's a gracious declaration. It's exclusive and intimate. It's full and it's gracious. He says in verse 14 that this glory was shown in this way. It was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth are likely related to two Hebrew terms that mean grace and kindness and faithfulness or trueness. Maybe trueness would be a bit better way to translate this. Because the point is that his grace has this character about it. He binds himself to his people. So he's gracious and he's faithful. 
gracious and faithful. True in the sense of true to his people. So without any reserve, we can entrust ourselves to his unwavering love. His faithful, constant, always grace. And right here I would connect that, this statement that he is full of unfailing love, of, of constant grace. That Paul's statement in Romans 8 when he says, He who did not spare his own son, how will he not give, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? You see, he revealed that God is rich in a grace that will not stop to the end of our days. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, he gave his son. That means he's going to give you all things now and forever. He will never quit. Ever. It's a faithful grace. Committed, promised, never failing, always love. Full of love that is sincere and real. The love that is, Paul says, nothing can separate us from it kind of love. Faithful love. And this word, he says, grace upon grace in verse 16, that little preposition between uh, would indicate that one grace replaces another, which replaces another, which replaces another. And a great analogy, as you've heard before, is uh, the seashore. Uh, this salvation is, is defined now as inexhaustible grace that just comes at us. And in the waves, you know, one pulls back and then the next comes. And sometimes you can even feel, uh, this is why I like this illustration, sometimes you can even feel like grace is pulling away from me. But if, if that happens, let's just say your circumstances are terrible and tragic. And they're at least outwardly looking at us uh, from the outward standpoint, it seems like grace is being, it's just preparing for the next wave. You know, everything that happens to you is preparing a, an opening for grace, an opportunity for grace, a situation where he will show grace. It's only grace, inexhaustible grace, wave after wave. It's the backdrop of Everything you do, the sound of the waves. And is it that one reason you love to read on the seashore? It's just to hear that constant. There's something about it, at least for me. I just love it. Wave after wave after wave. And this is the context of everything you do. We all live on the seashore of grace. It's where we live and play and work and have our fellowship with one another. This is his glory. This is his majesty that he has unwavering grace for his people. This is the full report of God, unwavering grace and love for us. Full of faithful love shown in the person of Christ. This is who God is because if he gave his son, he will never turn away from his people. I love this word. Uh, Kay and I have used this word once we heard it years ago. Uh, a tryst, right? You know the word? Uh, it's an arrangement to meet and to meet secretly and sometimes secretly with, as lovers, right? Um, 
and we love bringing that language into marriage where it should be, you know. Uh, so, enough said. Uh, you can see me later if you want to hear more. But, <laughs> but, but the Puritan, uh, George Hutchinson, who also wrote a commentary on uh, John, he was speaking of Christ's humanity and suffering. And he says this most beautiful thing, that Christ in his humanity and suffering, what he's done for us, Christ is the trysting place where sinners may draw near to God and meet with God. That's where you meet God. That's the trysting place where you love and embrace and trust yourself to this God, where the secret place where God reveals his heart as to who he is in Christ. That's the trysting place. That's where you see the glory and goodness of God. And brothers and sisters, it says, of his fullness we have received. That means we don't have, we can't, we don't bring any fullness. We bring emptiness. We bring bring helplessness. We bring sinfulness and sinning. Everything we need, forgiveness, constant transformation, the hope of a resurrected body and a new creation and all things made new. Everything in his fullness, we have him. Us helpless, pathetic in ourselves, people, but beloved of God. Let us worship him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise your great name. We praise you, Lord Jesus that you gave yourself so freely, that you showed us who God really is. Enable us in this season and throughout the whole of our lives to dwell in real shalom, real wholeness, knowing that in Christ we have the favor of God forever, grace that will never waver, love that is faithful to the end from which we cannot be separated. Oh, we praise you, glorious God, for who you really are that is revealed to us in Christ. Amen.